everyone, welcome to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. This is Lou Rosenfeld, and I'm really happy to have our special guest, Lisa Reichel. Hey, Lisa. Hello. Hey, Lou. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, I am. Uh, it is uh, evening on a Monday, which means it's, uh, uh, I guess it's Tuesday in the morning for you. It is. That's right. It's Sydney. Right now. And uh, Lisa's at Atlassian, where she's the head of research and insights. She's also going to be the opening keynoter at the Design Ops Summit here in New York City on November 7th. Really pleased to have her there. She's uh, paired with Doug Powell from uh, IBM as our closing keynoter. They're going to be telling some interesting stories about design ops and research ops in the context of humongous, interesting organizations. And uh, I thought we'd talk a little bit about some of the ideas that you wanted to um, to bring up at your keynote. And you have you you basically have some interesting sort of uh, like an interesting narrative arc to your career working in in terms of operationalizing research. Uh, you were at the uh, UK Government Digital Service, which is still, in my mind, like the, the trailblazing entity. Uh, what amazing stuff you guys were able to do for a whole nation. Uh, and then uh, you went to Australia to do the same type of thing for the Digital Transformation Agency uh, before um, hopping over to Atlassian. So, in those three settings, were your assumptions that you went in uh, with uh, um, upheld, or did you really get surprised by uh, the nature of the work once you uh, dug in? Yeah. Um, so I guess they, they're all three very different experiences in a way, Lou. I mean, and the interesting thing for me is that before that, I spent many years as a consultant and freelancer um, and was I was that annoying person who was always saying, well, you know, if your work's too frustrating or too slow, just leave and go somewhere else. Um, and I, I look back on my life now and I realize I've said an awful lot of very annoying things uh, and, and, and still have much to learn. But that was that was that was my kind of first first life, I guess, in, in that like you go in, you tackle an interesting problem. If it all gets a bit hard and boring, you, you go away and move on to the next one. Uh, which was great for me from a learning point of view. I don't know how much help it was to the organizations that I was engaged with now when I think back on it. Um, and then as 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 I kind of went along, I started to realize how how important actually influencing the organization itself and the way that it worked and the way that it thought and, and a lot of its kind of ingrained processes was to the ability for success to be sustained over time um, and my last project that I did actually before I went and worked for the government digital service was a it was a probably a six or eight month contract I think uh, and we built an amazing team uh, and kind of were able to get around all kinds of objections around how the way that we wanted to do something couldn't possibly be done and, and, and showed you know, using human-centered design, that it was, you know, it was absolutely the right thing to do. And then I went on holiday back to Australia. This was this was in England. Went on holiday back to Australia. By the time I came back from holiday, the organization had already started reverting back to the way that it was previously. And, and that was when I really started to realize it, that um, that if you wanted to make sustainable change, you needed to actually kind of get stuck in 
to the organization itself, that, that the design problems that, that I'd been dealing with were kind of really on the surface level and they could be undone, undone by a swat of the organization's, you know, tail, basically. Um, and so that was when the opportunity to go work uh, with Government Digital Service came up and that well, already they had a load of really smart people working on amazing things. Uh, and they were making a lot of big noises about uh, being user-centered, user, you know, user needs being like the number one driving principle. Uh, but there was, at the time, not a massive amount of actual end-user interaction going on in that organization. There was some, but but not a huge amount. Um, and so, yeah, so so that was that was going in where there were loads and loads of really good conditions, huge, huge amounts of smart people, the, the will and desire, um, and and so I kind of made a bunch of recommendations there that that you know, were, were set in train. People people said yes to things that I'd never thought that they would say yes to, and and that enabled us to kind of make really great progress. I think in terms of helping the organisation take that next step forward uh, and and get much closer interaction with many many more. Uh, end users uh, than than before. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about UK uh, GDS. Uh, and before you even got there, or maybe around the time you got there, something happened that enabled this all to come down, right? Uh, yeah. You know, I don't know if we, I know. Uh, was it Tim Annett Baker? Is that mm, Tim Annett was there? Yeah, as designer. Yeah, I, I don't know if he was one of the people or there was anyone else, but somehow. There was an effort that was successful to get people at fairly high levels of, um, I guess it was a Tory government at the time, Cameron, to go along with this. And uh, what's the secret sauce that, that made that happen? Or, or, or is that like privy secrets of the state? <laughs> I, so, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't there at the time when it was all happening, but if I look back and and uh, make my reflection on it. I think that there were two incredibly, well, three, three incredibly important things that were in place at the time. Um, first of all, there was uh, a, a politician who was late in his career and was willing to make hard decisions that other politicians didn't necessarily like and he didn't care. So he was willing to, to, to you know, hold the line. Uh, and he then engaged people who knew what they were doing. So he engaged Martha Lane Fox, who uh, worked with Tom Lusmore, uh, both of whom had, you know, deep technical experience, uh, you know, in Tom from BBC and, and a bunch of other areas, uh, Martha from, you know, the lastminute.com startup world. Uh, and they were able to uh, shape a strategy that made sense. And then being in London and being very well connected, they were then able to entice a team of people into government, the likes of which we've probably never seen before. Uh, and so those three things together, I think, were, were the magic recipe uh, that meant that GDS was able to get so far, so fast. Uh, and without any one of those things, I don't know whether they would have succeeded, but they, they had all of those three things and they ran with it. So interesting that, um, you know, a politician who was actually probably not thinking of, uh, well, 
it was a short timer, a short termer, didn't have much time left, it sounds like, was the one who was willing to invest. You know, usually we think of uh, a lot of politicians as only thinking about what's going to happen for them by the next election. I guess this one didn't really worry about the next election. And so was willing to stick their neck out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is a huge difference. If you have a politician who is late in career and has decided that they don't want to be the prime minister, but they do want to leave a lasting legacy of doing the right thing, you're in a whole different world than if you've got a young, ambitious, upcoming politician who's, who is trying to make friends with everybody or make friends with all the right people uh, with the hope of, you know, a, a great political career. Um yeah, I, I, having having worked under both kinds, the the former is way 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 more useful than the latter. Yeah, I've seen that type of thing. Uh, not having worked too much with government, but I've certainly seen it in higher ed, where you have uh, essentially politicians who are looking to uh, put lipstick on a pig, you know, a cosmetic redesign before they move on to the next job a year or two later. Because, you know, it's, they're moving that quickly and anything but cosmetic is going to be unnoticeable. So, um, but back to your work. Uh, so then you're at UK um, GDS. Yep. Uh, there's these interesting three factors that had come together already that created a, a good, hopefully, good setting for you to do some work. What, mm -hmm. what was the nature of, of your engagement there? Well, I, I started actually on an on a individual project working on the um, identity Identity Assurance Project. Uh, and that was actually, again, you know, so much of these things are kind of luck along the way. Uh, you know, due to the way that the budgeting was organised, uh, they were the only team who was allowed to have their own uh, UX researcher. Um, and so we were able to set up a, a way of working in that team that um, allowed us to kind of demonstrate the kind of progress that you could make against hard decisions if, if you if you worked in this particular way and that gave I think that gave people something to aspire to something different to, to want than what they'd had before so previous to that they'd had a very small number of researchers stretched over a very very big complicated program of work so that those people uh, you know those researchers would look at their days and and you know they would be dealing with, you know, like over the course of the week, they'd get to spend a couple of hours with each team, which is just nowhere near enough to be effective. Um, and there was loads of loads of very kind of arm's length outsourcing going on. And so, so in general, I don't think research was able to be effective because of the way that it had been set up. Uh, and so when I um, moved over into the head of research role there, I kind of did it basically um, as part of a bit of a deal to say, well, I'll, I'll do it, but only if we can do it in this in this new way, not in the let's stretch a researcher over, research over as much as we possibly can and just you know have them cope, but like let's actually set researchers up for success. Um, so we asked for way more people uh, than than people had kind of previously ever anticipated having you know as as researchers in the organisation. And we made sure that we put them like one person into each project. And that was the, we, we had all of these rules of thumbs, right? So we had, you know, you had to have one researcher per, per product. You had to, you know, do research at least once a sprint. You had to involve the entire team. We had all of these kind of rules that, um, that meant that, uh, that we were able to sort of scale this way of working quite well. Where did those um, rules come from? We made them up. I made them up. <laughs> 
so you didn't get some uh, sanctioned list of guidelines from the uh, International uh, User Researcher uh, Consortium, you, or maybe you... I'm not aware of that existing. Yeah, right. no, I, I'd, so I, I kind of, I'd looked at what I'd seen work well in the past. Um, and I, you know, as, as you start getting older and crustier at this stuff, Lou, you start, you, you might not know what's going to work, but you know what definitely won't work. Right. And so, and so you, so you, you ask for the opposite of what won't work in a way. Um, and I think also in a, in, a, in a believable way, I mean, it sounds like it's not so much that you made them up. It's just that you probably presented them in a way that was really probably hard to argue with. I hope so. And I think also because we had that, that original case study. So again, that, that sheer chance. Uh, but also I think, yeah, I, I, I want to recognize the fact that, that I'm enormously privileged in that at that stage in my career in a, in a town like London, you can also just walk away. You know, you, the, the, having, having the knowledge in your mind that if, if the organization isn't going to play in a way that will allow you to succeed, you can go away is is you know an, an enormous privilege and helps enormously in those negotiations as well it's old school negotiating isn't it so i think i think i was extremely fortunate that i always i, I never let myself become like a lifelong civil servant public servant much as i w would have you know potentially liked to have been continuing to serve for much longer than i actually ended up doing um it was never i was never making decisions based on the longevity of my career in that organization which i think is is super important but also at gds um i think it was around two years maybe a little more in the end yeah could have been two two and a half i don't know i'm terrible at remembering dates i can only just remember my kids birthdays um yeah so it was it was about that long and you know what from from the beginning where we had these these you know three or four researchers spread over about 30 or 40 different projects um you know who they were going absolutely insane and and nobody really had a huge amount of time for for that work or it was it was dealt with very skeptically by the time i was leaving uh i had like the opposite problem which was as projects were spinning up people were saying well i've got a new project i'm definitely going to need three or four researchers and you go no no you don't need to start with that many so so that was that was kind of interesting and and now you know if you look at the number of researchers who are working across government in in the uk it's just it's i find it incredible to think um, of where we where we started and, and, and where we are now and and the fact that that has uh, managed to be sustained for this period of time and, and hopefully will you know will continue for, for some time if not forever um, is is great I'm sorry did you were you worried that um, when you left there might be a, a rollback as uh, you, you'd certainly seen in other contexts I don't think so, because I think that we had managed to recruit so many amazing researchers into government and the quality of their work was so high and the level of collaboration that they were having with the team was so high that um, it was, you know, it wasn't about me. It stopped being about me very, very early on as soon as we started introducing these great people and, and putting them in a situation where they were able to do good work. So there were so many good people doing such good work that the, they, they were amazing ambassadors and, and many of them continue to be until this day.
but did you, once you had those people in place, I know that two, two and a half years isn't very long, but I imagine there was some opportunity for you to be there long enough to, to start not only witnessing the great work that they were doing, but you were probably in a role to have to communicate it to other senior people in the organization. I mean, were you telling their story? And if so, what, what kind of story were you telling? How, how did you tell it, I suppose, is a better way to ask. Hmm. I think that the the great thing about um, GDS and and many of the other um, agencies and departments that we were working with as well is that they really embraced the user needs first uh, mantra and principle. And so telling stories about users was something that was kind of um, part of their DNA. So I, you know we had an amazing comms team. I think that was also super important. Um, and um, and the, the the organization was always looking for opportunities to tell stories of, about users and tell stories about how the work that we had done uh, had uh, you know improved services and you know improved people's access to, to government and um, so you know I, I'll be honest with you I don't feel like I actually had to work hugely hard on that because I feel as though um, the the organization was very well configured for that. I think one of the main things to reflect on um, would be it was actually kind of the the, um, the working in working embedded in teams, working at that agile pace, the discipline that we really had to um, the discipline that we really needed was to make sure that we were um, not just dealing with the very specific minute things that we might have been looking at in that sprint, but that we would step back regularly and go, what are the big things? What are the big themes? What are the bigger problems that might be sort of policy level problems rather than interface level problems? And to make sure that we were representing those back to leadership on a regular basis. Uh, that took quite a bit of, of discipline to kind of fit into the pace. And I think some, sometimes we did it well and sometimes not so well. How much of the communication uh, were you doing to the citizenry in, in the UK about the success of this type of work? I, I mean, like, you know, as someone on this side of the Atlantic, I was certainly hearing about it, but I'm in the field. Mm. I'm wondering how much uh, an average uh, British citizen knew about this work. I don't think, well, I mean, you know, GDS was famous for its blogging. It blogged, it blogged you know, every time it sneezed, just about, which was great. Um, so it was all it was all certainly there and available. I don't know um, how many kind of end end users would have even known that GDS existed. I think certainly we saw feedback along the way that indicated that people noticed services improving. But I don't. I think if you stopped somebody on the street and asked them if they knew about the government digital service and and the amazing work that they'd done, most people probably wouldn't have a clue. Um, what we know from research is that government's government. It's all it's all just kind of you know very often considered one big black box. Mm -hmm. So when you then made the move to Australia to, to work at the Digital Transformation Agency, where did you? assume that what you had done in the UK was going to work the same way, be received the same way. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you try to, you try to do a little bit of a check of, of your environment and everybody had kind of, you know, I'd heard a lot of people going, Oh, it's very different in Australia. There's three levels of government. Yes. It's true from a governmental point of view. Is it true? Does it impact your practice? I wouldn't have really thought so. 
Yeah, and also because much of the work that the that the DTO at the time was doing was very much kind of modelled on the work of GDS, it did kind of make sense that we uh, took what we knew from that environment and and tried to apply it here. Um, I think that it was it felt in a way like we could get a little bit of a fast forward, we could get a head start in some respects because we didn't have to go through the, all of the same learning processes as we did with GDS. But uh, and and yeah, and in some ways, some of the work that we got to do, I think, was was really you know quite advanced and um, and really high quality work. But there is a whole other set of of challenges on this side of the pond that made me really appreciate, I guess, you know, the, those three things that I mentioned before uh, that made GDS as successful as it was. Um, so the political environment obviously was really different. Uh, and also just the um, the geographic and the kind of capability landscape was really different. I, I had never really fully appreciated what a special place London is in terms of having everything, everything in one city, um, including, you know, a, a huge cohort of very, you know, experienced and, and, and really talented people. Um, and when we came to work in Australia, we had deliberately set up an office in Sydney because we wanted to be able to get access to, you know, more of the talent that was available to us uh, in Australia. But it did, it introduced a, a lot of big challenges working across, uh, you know, a, a big, a big geographic divide between Canberra, where, you know, the heart, the centre of government for, um, for federal Australian politics is, uh, and um, and the Sydney office, which was where it was easier to to hire people who were more experienced in, you know, digital design, delivery and um, uh, development. So geography played a role, uh, where, where the talent and how much talent there was played a role in terms of differences you found in Australia versus the UK, any other major factors? I think I think the the um, the political uh, situation again, like so we mentioned, you know, having Francis Maud as being that late stage politician who was really willing to to take tough decisions and, and not 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 caring quite as much about you know the level of popularity that he had with these um, colleagues was super useful and. Um, the our, our organization the dta dto at the time uh had been set up by uh malcolm turnbull who was at the time the um minister for communications i was on the plane on the way over to australia moving here when when he turned into the prime minister so you know yes it was great to have an advocate at you know in the highest office uh but he had an awful lot more on now than he did when he was just doing comms and so his ability to to engage i think was was different than it would have been um so that so, so i think that changed a lot of things as well hmm. um, and then and yeah. then moving to atlassian totally different type of environment totally yeah. different yeah. yeah what's the the main contrast from your perspective so the the way that I describe it is that um, you know most other places that I've been, I've I've often felt a little bit like John the Baptist in the desert, kind of going, "You should care about users. There is a thing called research," and everyone's like, "Really? Why? Why would we do that?" And so your whole battle is basically to get on anyone's agenda 
any at all and really to kind of get them to care anywhere near the level that they need to care. And nobody's nobody's talking to people or listening to feedback or doing anything like that. And, and frontline staff are often, you know, the lowest in the pecking order and, and nobody cares what they have to say. Um, so that's, that's kind of like a typical setup. So to come somewhere like Atlassian, it, it is super, super, super different. Um, I think in my first week here, uh, I, you know, loads of people basically uh, either messaged me or met me and talked to me. I did a lot of meetings in my first couple of weeks. And, and one of the big sort of prevailing messages was, I'm glad that you're here. I'm not really sure what you're going to do. But if you think you're going to stop me from doing research, you have another thing coming. Um, so, you know, PMs, product managers uh, and, and designers were both, you know, all, both of those really active in going out and talking to users. We have an amazing kind of support organization and a field operations organization who are also, you know, out there being the voice of the customer and listening to users as well. Um, and so there are a lot of, there, there is a, there's a legacy, there's a legacy of how we talk to customers and what we do and, and, um, and what user-centeredness or customer-centeredness means here. And so it was, yeah, and so it was really, it was kind of, it was interesting to, to try to start to think about what is my job in that context? What's the value that I can add? What should I be concentrating on? Um, and, and how do I get these people's attention? Because they think they're fine. Well, so you're in a more uh, uh, mature environment when it comes to understanding the value of user research. Accordingly, have you had to set up uh, the research operations to be more federated or decentralized than you might have thought going in? Yeah, so I guess the, the way the, the way that the, the, having having been here for for a year now, um, to be honest with you, I, I'm still I'm still I still feel like I'm getting my head around how best to do this because every time every time you do something, everything changes, and then you have to kind of learn and respond again. It's definitely been looking for ways that we can help to support the, the other people in the organization who want to have this, this customer user contact to do these research exercises to be able to do that more efficiently on one hand. So I think like, like every organization everywhere and, and particularly B2B organizations, you know, recruitment is, is always, you know, a, a, a huge opportunity to help, um, help improve. And I think, you know, a GDPR, added to urgency around that as well to an extent um, so there are some kind of obvious obvious areas where people were actually looking to us you know for help um, for us to kind of focus in on um, but the other thing I think was was looking at looking at the limitations in in the work that was being done uh, in the organization at, at, the, at the time that, that I was joining uh, and there were kind of two main things there I think that um, I think we I think we had some bad habits. We still do have some bad habits in terms of the way that we the way that we that, that we've traditionally done research. Um, so I think there are, there are yeah there are some some opportunities for craft improvement um, that we want to be able to uh, achieve. And then the second thing is around like the structural uh, challenges, um, like any organization at Lassian has its silos um, and 
and we've traditionally researched very much kind of within those silos and that has uh, enormous opportunity but it also has kind of great shortcomings as well um, and so you know we, we really have recognized this opportunity to kind of to be the people be some of the people who sit above those silos and get more of the helicopter view of how people are experiencing uh, working with Atlassian and Atlassian suite of products um, so yeah so really like just profoundly different set of challenges and opportunities and types of work and ways of structuring teams um, than, than what I had kind of settled into in my last two jobs um, and yeah it's been it's been a really interesting challenge kind of going through the process of thinking through like what 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 stays the same what's different what about what I thought I know can I trust what do I need to challenge um, and a lot of it going back to I think that thing that I said before Lou about how you know like I know I know I know that I know things I, I can recognize things that definitely won't work um, but I, I feel much less certain about whether or not things will definitely work. Um, and so that's always a really kind of challenging uh, environment to be in and, and trying to work out whether to, you know, go softly, softly and incremental or whether to like make big bets and, and see how the system reacts to, to some of your kind of big, bold, brave bets. Well, yeah. when you're mapping out something that's new and you're trying to make sense of uh, just a, an area that's a, a great unknown, you, you, you're probably not going to do much better than invoking the process of elimination. It sounds like uh, that served you well. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing, as I'm sure many other people are, uh, your, your keynote at Design Ops in November here in New York. Um, the conference is sort of sold out now, if anyone's interested in coming, although we're making a, a uh, a little bit less expensive ticket available. Um, you can still go into the auditorium, but you won't be able to uh, go into the uh, the room with all the lunches and breakfasts because that's a smaller room. But uh, if you are interested in hearing Lisa in November, uh, you there are still some tickets, uh, designopsummit.com. I'm not just plugging things we're selling. Uh, I'm also running three communities now uh, with a monthly free video conference call, and they're all probably relevant to one degree or another uh, to what you've been talking about, Lisa. So one is a design ops community, another is a, um, an enterprise UX community, and the third is brand new, we haven't met yet, it's called Advancing Research. And uh, if anyone would like to join us for any of those free monthly calls, uh, you can, for now, pop an email to info at rosenfeldmedia.com, and we'll be glad to send you a, an invite for your calendar. Beyond that, it's been a pleasure to have you join us. Uh, I want to mention a couple of URLs if you want to learn more about what Lisa's up to. One is her website, uh, www.disambiguity.com. It's a great URL, disambiguity.com. Uh, you could also go to Atlassian.design to learn more about what the design organization is doing at Atlassian. And uh, once again, Lisa Reichelt, Head of Research and Insights at Atlassian. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Lou.